On the morning of September 11th, 2001, 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial airplanes. Two left from Boston, one left from just outside DC, and the fourth left from Newark, New Jersey. The hijackers flew two of the planes into the twin towers of the World Trade Center, one plane into the Pentagon, and the other, following a counterattack by passengers and crew members, crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. Nearly 3,000 people were killed that day, and that's still the largest death toll from a foreign attack on American soil. Hundreds of first responders who ran to save people from the building and pull survivors from the rubble died. And many of the first responders who survived are battling illnesses like lung disease and different cancers that they seem to be getting at a much higher rate than the general population. Welcome to Tiny Matters. I'm Sam Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Deboki Chakravarti. This is the second episode of our two episodes on air pollution. The first one was episode 10, where we talked about what air pollution is, the different chemicals and particles in the air that we should care about not breathing in. We also covered the things that cause air pollution and why it sticks around in some places more than others and what that air quality score on your phone actually means. And we kicked things off with the deadly London smog of 1952 and the major changes to environmental policy that came from it. So I guess this is all to say that if you haven't listened to episode 10 yet, we'd suggest you do before you listen to this episode. Today on the show, we're mainly talking about the health impacts of air pollution from the September 11th attacks and less about the pollution itself. The scene at the Twin Towers that day was surreal. I was 10 at the time, I was watching it on TV, and I still don't really know how to describe it. Even if you weren't in New York City or the US or even born at the time, you've likely seen the pictures of people caked in a thick dust, the airborne remnants of the destruction. Exposure to that extreme amount of dust was almost instantaneous and had a major impact on the health of first responders. Back then, of course, but now, years later, they're being diagnosed with diseases like cancer more often and at a younger age than people who weren't exposed to the dust. And there are many scientists out there who have dedicated their careers to understanding why. Today, we'll hear from two of them who are both located in New York City. The first is medical oncologist William O. On 9-11-2001, of course, everyone remembers exactly what they were doing at that moment. I was working in Boston at a cancer center called the Dana-Farber. William is now a professor of medicine at Mount Sinai and the chief medical officer for Semaphore, a company that uses artificial intelligence to create more personalized healthcare. I thought it was an accident. I thought some commuter airplane crashed in. I had no idea, as many people did not, about the scale of the event. My whole family's from New York. In fact, two of my brothers uh, work downtown near Wall Street. Uh, luckily, they were not so close that they were able to get out of Manhattan. So it was something that definitely hit close to home. I was also supposed to fly out for a meeting later that day. So the first person who called me was my sister-in-law. She called to make sure that I wasn't on one of the airplanes that left from Logan. Boston is not a very big city. And even New York City, when you look at these connections, it had just affected so many people's lives. 
Some have estimated that over 400,000 people in Manhattan, including first responders, of course, but also people who lived and worked there and kids who went to school there, all of those people were exposed to dust and smoke when the World Trade Center towers fell. And that toxic dust stayed for a few days until it finally rained and was washed to the ground. I say toxic because it was filled with different compounds that are known or potential carcinogens. Carcinogens are things that cause cancer. Some of the best known carcinogens are the chemicals found in cigarette smoke. And we have a ton of data from many different people in many different environments over decades to be able to say the chemicals found in cigarette smoke definitively cause cancer. But William tells us that there are so many different potential carcinogens out there and that because cancer often takes many years to develop, Pinpointing the carcinogen or carcinogens that cause it is very difficult. The air pollution on September 11th was different from most air pollution exposures because tons of these carcinogens were released into a very narrow geographic area all at once. These carcinogens came from the plane itself, in the jet fuel, for example, but also from the building. Building materials are often filled with things like asbestos and glass fibers and other particulate matter. And no one would have been exposed to it if it weren't for the attack. In 2009, William relocated from Boston to New York City and began his current position as chief of hematology and oncology at Mount Sinai. Not long after arriving there, William was seeing first responders who were receiving care through the World Trade Center Health Program, which provides free medical monitoring, treatment, mental health services, and benefits counseling for 9-11 responders and volunteers. One patient in particular stood out. It was probably about a decade after the event, and he was only in his early 30s when he was exposed, and he was now in his early 40s. And he told me a story about right after his exposure, he had to pee like every 30 minutes for years. Now, that happens in some men in their 30s, but that's more common as you get older because your prostate, for example, gets larger, or you might get an infection, but it's pretty unusual. There was something not right, and it it coincided exactly with his exposure. He was a police officer. Now, usually men in their early 40s would not be screened for prostate cancer, but two things led us to screen him for prostate cancer. One is the exposure, and, and the other was you know, his really dramatic symptoms. So they performed what's called a PSA test or prostate-specific antigen test that looks for the antigen protein in the blood. They found this man's levels were really high, which is a sign of cancerous tissue in the prostate. And a follow-up biopsy confirmed that it was cancer. Fortunately, this man's story has a happy ending. William told us that his cancer treatment was successful and he ultimately moved away. But William felt strongly that this man's case of prostate cancer was caused by his exposure to the dust on 9-11. There was some exposure here that was not normal and may or may not have been associated with this particular patient's cancer, but we also knew some epidemiologic data was coming out around the same time, which is prostate cancer was one of the cancers that was clearly elevated compared to matched controls. So that's the story that led us to look at this question more deeply. Years later, in 2019, William and his colleagues published a paper showing a link between 9-11 dust exposure and prostate cancer. 
So we did two things in our paper. We, we looked at cases and controls of men with prostate cancer who were exposed versus not exposed. They compared the expression of different genes between the groups and found that people exposed to the dust on 9-11 showed increased expression of genes involved in an immune system pathway that causes inflammation. Inflammation is one of your body's defense mechanisms, and it can be really beneficial because it protects you from infections and injuries, and it even speeds up healing if you get a cut or a bruise. But extended or excessive inflammation can cause more harm than good, and it's been linked to cancerous cell growth and tumors. Then the second thing we did was we had some dust from our colleagues at NYU that they had the foresight to save some of this dust. And in a closed chamber experiment exposing rats and looking at immediate effects and distant effects, what's remarkable to me about this is that, in fact, those rats breathed this dust. It wasn't injected into their prostates. They breathed the dust. And in fact, our colleagues weren't even interested in the prostate. They were not going to look at it. Why would you look at the prostate? It's so far away from the lungs. And yet, when we looked at the control uh, animals compared to the exposed animals and we looked at their prostates, their prostates had quite a lot of inflammatory changes and immune changes. And in the rats exposed to the dust from 9-11, William and his colleagues found that an immune pathway that was affected matched the one that was affected in the first responders with prostate cancer. Now, again, this doesn't prove that that pathway was the key one because these are very complicated questions with a lot of exposures. But that is why I think this paper started to give us some insight into maybe a link as to how breathing in the dust might have led to inflammatory changes in the prostate that might have driven prostate cancer in a very specific way. I think there are three components that are really critical to this particular story. The first and foremost is that these people, these men and women are heroes, and they put themselves in harm's way to help find survivors and to help respond to this terrible tragedy. And we have an obligation to, to really help them as individual patients. The second piece is to understand why environmental exposures might lead to prostate cancer. And this gets at something that's really important, which is we don't really know what causes prostate cancer. In fact, we don't know what causes a lot of cancers. Of course, there are certain risk factors. We know you have to have a prostate. It seems to get more common as you get older. And it does run in some families, but the majority of risk seems to be environmental. But what does that mean? What in our environment impacts risk? Are there certain elements, for example, of the chemical exposures that might still be increasing risk of some people getting prostate cancer or other cancers. And the third reason is to understand how better to treat patients who get these cancers. It is our obligation to understand what happened to these particular men, but also to learn from this event so that we can identify better therapies for the future. William says he's optimistic that they will continue to learn more that will help these patients. We have to keep using science to drive what we do for for patients' health. And I think that the message here is better days to come with regard to understanding how environmental health impacts human health. Now let's travel down Manhattan, about four miles south of Mount Sinai, to New York University School of Medicine, where Anna Nolan is a professor of environmental medicine. I do recall walking to work that morning. It was a beautiful day. We were doing our usual pulmonary fellow things, like we were setting up for bronchoscopies and all sorts of things. And then we heard 
that a plane had hit the Trade Center. And then people were trying to rationalize, oh, maybe it was just an accident or maybe it was all sorts of other things that could have happened. And then we realized that the traffic had stopped on the highway, which we could see outside the window of the Bronkoskabu suite. And then we noticed that just at the point where the cars were starting at the, at the extreme distance of my view, that there were no cars, they were just ambulances. We finished up what we were doing and we came out of the room. We heard that another plane had hit the other tower. From there, it was just uh, the day kind of progressed and we're waiting for patients and to see what was going to happen. And it just got worse and worse. You might remember that William mentioned 9-11 first responders don't seem to be getting lung cancer any more frequently than the general population, which is surprising and still not fully understood. But just because they don't seem to be more likely to get lung cancer doesn't mean their lung health wasn't impacted. Anna told us that all of the chemicals that spewed from the fallen burning building material and planes made the air quite acidic, severely irritating people's eyes, mouths, throats, and lungs, and that concentrations of particulates, those tiny pieces of things like soot floating in the air, were extremely high. It's more typical of what would be found in a very brisk, wildfire where you're close to the smoke and other particulates. So it was of that concentration for many, many hours, less like what you would be exposed to in your typical urban environment. Anna and her colleagues were studying the lung function of 9-11 firefighters, and they noticed a huge range in what they were seeing. We noticed that not all the patients were behaving the same way. Some firefighters lost lung function, while others lost less, and there was a, another population that stayed healthy throughout all of this. And we were curious what other pathways might be important to this. What they found was that different cardiovascular risk factors, like being overweight or having high cholesterol or high glucose, were linked to loss of lung function. So in other words, being exposed to particulate matter is bad for your lungs. But if you add in certain cardiovascular risk factors on top of that, the risk to your lungs is greater. Why does knowing this matter? Because it can inform life-saving preventative care. For the first responders and for individuals in general that might be exposed to high particulates, those that are close to wildfires or those that are deployed in areas where there are burn pits and other things, those individuals have to particularly pay attention to their other risk factors of disease specific to their vasculature. And it's, it's not to say that, that they aren't already doing so, but that's just something that they can potentially treat early. Let's say you're a firefighter in California, a place where there are already a lot of wildfires and with climate change, there's probably only going to be more. The risk to your lungs is already pretty high because of all that particulate matter you're exposed to. And if you have, say, high cholesterol, your risk is even higher. You may not be able to limit your exposure to particulate matter, but you can do things to lower your cholesterol. Anna and her colleagues have now completed a clinical trial with 9-11 firefighters who were put on a specialized diet that was lower in calories, but rich in what are considered healthy fats like olive oil and the ones in avocados and fish. The researchers found that these firefighters lost weight and that certain aspects of their lung function improved. 
I think that, you know, that research really nicely ties in with what William said about how there are better days ahead when it comes to our understanding of how environmental health impacts human health. We have people like William and Anna who are studying the long-term impact of this brief extreme exposure. But then we also have experts like the ones we spoke with for episode 10 who are studying the impact of ongoing exposures. And the goal for every expert we spoke with is to learn things that can then influence policy or medicine or both and improve human health. That's, that's some good stuff. It is some good stuff. Okay, so I think it is time for our tiny show and tell. Uh, Sam, do you want to go first? Sure. So I think that my tiny show and tell today is pretty relevant for today's episode, particularly what we learned from William. So scientists have recently unfrozen cells from rat testicles that have been frozen for over 23 years. And they found that when they implanted those cells in mice, they actually started producing sperm. If adults are diagnosed with cancer, they can have sperm samples frozen before they go through chemotherapy because chemotherapy, it's used to kill cancer cells, but it's not very specific. So it's also gonna kill other types of cells like the ones in the testicles that make sperm. So if someone wants to maybe have kids through IVF one day, they'll have their sperm frozen before they go through chemo. But for kids who are diagnosed with cancer, they haven't gone through puberty, so they're not producing sperm. So freezing sperm is not an option. And so then there's always that concern that later on in life, they'll want to have kids, but they will be infertile and they just won't be able to. So finding that, again, you know, this is in rats and mice, but finding that testicular cells that were frozen for over two decades will still produce sperm if they're implanted. If that translates in humans, that would be huge. And actually, you know, some clinics have started removing and freezing tiny, tiny samples um, from kids who are about to undergo chemo, um, hoping that this will be the case, that it'll actually work. And there's at least one clinic, which is located in Belgium, that has been approved to do the reimplantation surgery. Interesting. Yeah. So did they save these cells for this experiment? Well, like, was this a 20-year-long experiment? I So I don't think so. I wonder if the samples were saved more or less because there could be a variety of experiments they might want to do with them down the line. I know that people freeze samples on purpose to just kind of see how long they'll last, how long they can, you know, retrieve different proteins or do some form of genetic sequencing or whatever. So I don't know if this was kind of a thing where a bunch of samples were just frozen for whatever purpose in the future. But yeah, I mean, 23 years, that's a really long time for something to to be in a deep freeze. And then, you know, you re-implant it and all of a sudden these mice are producing sperm. It's amazing. Okay. Are you ready for your tiny show and tell? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Cool. So uh, today I want to talk about an experiment that hasn't happened yet, but that I'm like really excited for. It is years to a decade away, but it's like one of those things that knowing that people are working on this just makes me really, really happy. And I am talking about the Mars uh, sample return mission. So this is a collaboration between NASA and the European Space Agency. 
And the idea is basically we've already sent Perseverance to Mars and it is collecting these rock samples, which is already really wild that there are people who are just like controlling this rover to get it to collect rocks to do chemistry experiments on. I'm already like my mind is blown by that. But then we also, we want to study those rocks. Well, not we, but like the scientists, they want to, they want to see those rocks. They want to be able to work with them. And so somehow we have to be able to get those rocks from Mars back to Earth. And for some reason, my brain always kind of skips that step. I'm like, yeah, we got, we got Mars rocks. Of course we can just look at them, but no, we got to figure out how to actually bring them back here. So there's this whole plan in place that people are working on where we're going to send a lander to Mars. That lander is going to then send out a rover to get the samples from Perseverance. Then it's going to load those samples into a rocket, get that rocket up into Mars's orbit, and then that is going to somehow eventually get retrieved and sent back to Earth. Wow. All of those pieces are already really incredible to me if it like all comes together. I think that's going to be the first rocket that we've launched off the surface of Mars. And this whole thing is supposed to involve two missions. Like the first one is planned for, at least from the NASA website, it says the mid-2020s, I think is what. Which is like three years, two, three years away. Yeah, I forget when our next Mars uh, launch window is, but I I assume it would be probably for that. And that's to get the samples off of the planet and into Mars's orbit. And then the second mission would be to uh, actually get you know, get it from the orbit back to Earth. And I think that's supposed to be 2030s. I don't know what the timelines of these actually are going to turn out to be. But I just, again, like I said, I love thinking about the fact that this is a thing people are working on and that somehow we're going to like get Mars samples that we've collected to Earth. I just think that's so cool. Yeah. It's a lot of anticipation. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Also, because it's so far, I mean, you know, so far in the future is all relative, but it is a long time, right? To just even think about how technology will improve in a way, it's kind of awesome that it's going to be 10 years. I mean, I would love if we could get them immediately and then get more rocks immediately. And, you know, I wish it was an instantaneous thing because you could just be getting data all the time. But it is this thing where you're like, what more can we learn? Because I feel like yeah. we are learning things about our universe and about about Mars and the moon and apparently black holes as well. Yeah. And so I'm like, what else will we know by the time those samples arrive that means that we can learn even more cool stuff? Yeah. I love it because it's like such like a weird combination of things that are both so simple and then so technologically complicated. Like they're just collecting rocks, which is like the thing that like, I don't know if you did this, but I did this when I was little, right? Like you'd go to the playground, you just like pick out the cool rocks, but they're doing this on such an incredibly advanced, like they're doing this on another planet. Like that is so cool. Hopefully one of these days I'm going to get to like read about some paper that came out where like scientists are talking about Martian rocks that they like directly worked with that were collected from the rover. How crazy will that be? I mean, for scientists who are able to, you know, I say touch those rocks, but they probably won't be able to even like directly like hold the rocks because they don't yeah. want to contaminate them. But just <laughs> like be, just be in the presence of something that was on Mars and that took 10 years to show up. It's like, yeah, don't screw those experiments up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favorite, one of my favorite stories from the moon missions is that they collected like this, like lunar, these lunar rock samples. And then they were like, well, we got to make sure that like this is safe. So they fed it to different animals including like cockroaches to like make sure that there wasn't anything toxic in there. And most, I think like almost all the animals were like fine that that were exposed to it. 
But it's just like one of those things where we're like, uh, we got the space rocks. What do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> Giving us a lot to look forward to. <laughs> So as always, we'll have links to the show and tell stories and websites and relevant materials in our episode description. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tiny Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society. I'm your exec producer and host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Deboki Chakravarti. This week's script was written by Sam, edited by me, and fact-checked by Michelle Boucher. The Tiny Matters theme and episode sound design are by Michael Simonelli, and our artwork was created by Derek Bressler. A big thank you to William O. and Anna Nolan for chatting with us this episode. As always, if there are some tiny things that you think matter and that you'd love for us to explore in an episode, shoot us an email at tinymatters@acs.org. You can find me on Twitter at okidoki underscore bokey. And you can find me on Twitter at Sam J Science. We'll see you next time.